After four years of frustration, disappointment, and grief, the United States has chosen a new way ahead. The Haas Formula One team will no longer continue with Kevin Magnussen and Romain Grosjean. Hello and welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. She's Sarah. Hello. He's Zog. Hello. And I don't know about you two, but I'm in a mood to celebrate. Not just because we finally got rid of the orange gibbon in charge of America, which is something worth celebrating, but also the news that broke today that it looks like we are inching closer to getting a vaccine to work against coronavirus, which means I can hug my friends again, I can socialise with people, and I can go to motorsport events. Next year, I've already booked Le Mans in my head, so that is massive news. Cautious though, Zog, yeah? Yes, but I agree. It's been a week of good news in many ways. I'm looking ahead to doing all kinds of things that I haven't been able to do for the last few months. Normal life is at least on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Sarah, you normally at Christmas head back to Australia. Are you able to do that this year? Well, that's a good question. I'd love to do that this year, but at the moment it's not possible. Well, I mean, it is possible if I want to go home and quarantine in a hotel room for two weeks and, you know, pay for the hotel room myself. The government's (laughs) actually making any Australian that comes back to Australia to either live or visit their family. It's a mandatory quarantine in a hotel so that's sort of about it'll cost between three and four grand um wow so even if i wanted to go home and visit i'd be in a hotel room by myself for a couple of weeks you know see my family and come back so it's it's it's, at the moment it's not really worth it it's not really viable so um and cut into your valuable family time yeah, yeah, my valuable beach time. <laughs> yeah. Being oh, 35 yeah. beautiful right. day outside and I wouldn't be able to leave a hotel room. All the while yeah. being tested negative, most probably, for COVID. We can't promise you a beach and sunshine in North London, but if on Christmas <laughs> Day you want to be with a bunch of people, I'm sure we can extend our bubble, oh, if it still exists, much. to have you in with us. That would be amazing. But anyway, hey, let's talk about Formula One because we've had a rash of races since we last spoke. The most recent one was the race that we used to call the San Marino Grand Prix that wasn't in San Marino and it was branded the Emilia Romagna Grand Prix because it was one of three races or three events that we had in the Formula One calendar in Italy this year and it was great to be back at Imola. I actually went there, I was at Imola I think in 1998 and it is one of the most beautiful circuits I've ever been to. It's a lovely, woody country park. It's a gorgeous place. And it was a good place for a race. It was a good race, wasn't it? It was. And obviously notable for Mercedes securing the seventh constructor's title. On Should we give trot. them an applause? Small applause. Oh, okay, yeah, they absolutely deserve it. Um, wow. Lewis adding yet another win. Actually, now tell me, why was it the Emilia Romana Grand Prix? I could have looked this up, I'm sure, but I... I didn't get around to it. Because, as you say, it used to be the San Marino Grand Prix. Yeah. And given that it's... So why wasn't it the San Marino Grand Prix again? Well, I don't know. But the reason why it used to be the San Marino Grand Prix was that they already had an Italian Grand Prix. That was Monza. Oh, yeah, yeah. And San Marino well, is a republic within Italy. Yeah. But yeah. the point is that San Marino 
doesn't actually have a circuit of its own. It's like having the Welsh Grand Prix at Brands Hatch, but branding no, it the Welsh that. Grand Prix. Yeah. Uh, why it was branded Emilia Romagna is possibly because of the precedent that they set by branding second races in countries in the region that the circuit is set. So we had the Tyrolean Grand Prix, didn't we? And we had... Um, the Eiffel Grand Prix. Eiffel Grand Prix, yeah. I also think San Marino also sponsored that Grand Prix. They had some sort of financial oh, okay. involvement in the past, which they probably didn't this time. That's my guess. But congratulations to Mercedes. Seven championships in a row. That's astronomically good isn't it it's very impressive yes it is very good i mean a lot of people will probably be thinking that you know same old same old but truly they are shown or proven their excellence haven't they yeah this is a sport in which it's not just about individual competitors it's also about a team competition and a technical competition yeah and this is something that f1 fans i think appreciate and we appreciate the competition on that technical level and you really have to say that Mercedes has done an extraordinary job in being so dominant over the last seven years. And it's not as if they haven't had some strong competition along the way. You could certainly say that Ferrari this year aren't in the most stellar form. But to dominate in the way that they have and have an unbroken run of seven championships, a record is quite an achievement. You know, we are not going to see this again. So let's appreciate just what they've achieved, just how good they are at doing what they're doing. That's a bold statement. We're not going to see this again. Well, we are not going to see it again. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. We won't live long enough. (laughs) Give it another 60 years, maybe. uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Because when Ferrari won, what did they get? Five in a row. That's their record. I'm sure people at that time were saying, we'll never see the like of it again. And in the World Rally Championship, you had the same person win it 10 times in a row. So extraordinary things can happen. And that was in a Citroen. (laughs) So ridiculous things can happen. Does this mean that in 60 years we're going to see what was Williams winning it eight times in a row? Probably not. Well, Williams actually did win quite a significant amount of titles. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think there's one of nine titles. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, until relatively recently, I still regarded Williams as being, you know, one of the teams that at least had the institutional memory of how to win championships, you know, of what it takes to be a winning team. It's easiest to look at the Williams of the last couple of years and regard them as a second-rate team at best. But there was a long period when they were spectacular. Well, let's focus on those who are consistently spectacular at the moment. The Mercedes team. Who can we thank for the success of the Mercedes team? Could it be, and this is a controversial statement here, Jacques Villeneuve and Craig Pollock, who established yeah, that's the team. That's going to take some justifying, I think. Yeah, man, yeah, yeah. They established BAR, as they were known, British American Racing, with money from British American Tobacco, said that they were going to win their first race with a Reynard design chassis, if I remember, but they didn't do that. That crumbled. That eventually became BAR Honda, which eventually became the Braun team when Honda pulled out. That's not like Honda, is it, to pull out of Formula One? And then it became the Braun team, which won in its first and only attempt. And then seven successive Mercedes wins. So let's thank Craig Pollock for making that wonderful idea of creating that team with Jacques Villeneuve. Well, I mean, I, th- I think uh, <laughs> it's a nice idea, Gareth, but I think, you know, you'd have to say that if you've got a 
pin the success on two people. It's Lewis Hamilton and Toto Wolff. Well, that would be the modern-day success. If you've got to pin it on three people, it's Lewis Hamilton, Toto Wolff and Nicky Lauda, I'd have thought. Yeah. That's true. Well, what about Ross Braun? He was quite instrumental in winning Braun the first season and then the team turned into Mercedes. I think you're right, Shara. I think they yes. had a good start, oh, didn't fact. they? They had a great platform yeah. on which to build. It's hard to go from zero to world championship, but Ross Braun and his brilliant approach to incremental changes, making small changes that make things better. Yeah, I mean, I guess you have to focus on people like Mario Illion as well, whose technology ultimately became, what do they call them, Mercedes high-performance power units, whatever that subdivision of Mercedes is called now, and a tranche of great designers who've made every single one of the Mercedes AMG Formula One cars the most reliable, competitive, Competitive and often innovative cars on the grid. And that's how you win championships. You put a package together of all those things. And then the cherry on the top of that package is probably the best driver in the world. Although if Tycho, my son, was here, he would argue that it's actually Max Verstappen who is better than Lewis. What do you reckon? Max better than Lewis? Well, <laughs> the one word answer, no, not yet, is the two word answer. Extraordinary talent. But Lewis Hamilton has proved himself to be the strongest driver of his generation by a significant margin, I think. We've just seen him match and pass several of Schumacher's records, only world championships to go. And those were records that I think, as you were suggesting a few minutes ago, Gareth, were records that, you know, a lot of people thought might not well be matched. And Lewis has come along, he's surpassed Schumacher's record for everything apart from number of world championships, and he is still absolutely dominating the sport. If Max was in a slightly better car, Lewis would be having a harder time of it. But he doesn't look like a man who is on the verge of retirement. Yeah, I mean, it possibly won't be there next year because, you know, it's conceivably good to decide not to. He's given some indications of that. That might be because he's trying to negotiate his new contract. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's just it's most likely to be a negotiating tactic. But he does have interest outside the sport and he doesn't seem to be a person who's driven by or who has the kind of appetite for records that Vettel has, for example. But the point is he's on his way to his seventh title. He's in magnificent form. He's the greatest of his generation possibly the greatest ever. You could make a case for that. You could certainly have a good argument about it. And quick thought, I mean, it is interesting to me that he has an MBE, doesn't he? He does, yes, yes, an MBE. He hasn't been knighted. And it seems to me that several sports people have been knighted for achievements in their sports that are significantly less good than being clearly the best competitor of your generation over several years. You know, Chris Hoy, Mo Farah, Jessica Ennis-Hill, Alistair Cook. Sure, they're great competitors, great sports people. But these are all athletes who take part in sort of Olympic sports, don't Andy they? Andy Murray. Oh, Andy Murray, actually, he's exception. You're right there. But maybe whoever it is who awards these things is slightly biased against professional sports, you know, moneyed sports. And they're trying to reward mm. the athletes rather than the professional sports person. Andy Murray's a professional sports person. Fair enough. I think it simply says something about the way that motorsport is regarded in our culture. It says something about motorsport motorsport being less highly regarded than athletic competition. Yeah. Well, it's a different type of elite skill, isn't it? It's not quite pushing your muscles to the limits. It's more of a perceptive thing and technical thing and a cross between engineering and being able to perform physically as well. Their heart rates get so high. But is excelling at that particular skill somehow less worthy of 
recognition than running fast or jumping high? I personally don't think so. I would rate it as sport. All those drivers have to keep very, very fit. They've got very gruelling training regimes. So I don't discount it as being an elite sports person, that's for sure. I am super impressed at just how fit Formula One drivers have to be. And it was Schumacher who set the mould for the modern Formula One driver. His levels of fitness were way above anything we'd seen before then. And you look at Kimi, Kimi's shoulders, he's got these incredibly broad shoulders. And Lewis, I've said this on the programme before, he's got a body like a superhero. I mean, these are super fit athletes. And some of the things they're expected to do, you know, to drive those cars for almost two hours in the heat of Southeast Asia, that's as tough as playing, I don't know, a a four-hour tennis match, surely. But hey, that's not for us to decide. If it was, Lewis would be Sir, 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 Lewis Hamilton, I think. Is he the greatest of all time, Sarah? The statistics say he is. Do you think he is, though? Well, I was only thinking when Zog was chatting about Lewis and how he thinks he's the greatest driver of all time. And when you compare it to Max Verstappen, I'd be very interested to know that when these rules do change, Will it make an impact on the sport and will drivers that perhaps are up to Lewis Hamilton's level, will they get up to speed and give him a run for his money? But I do agree, though, that if Lewis Hamilton was challenged in a car of equal standard to the one he drives by somebody like Max Verstappen, I do think Daniel Ricciardo is a good driver, Charles Leclerc, all those guys, you know, if they were all in a Mercedes too, it would be very interesting to see how that would go. But I, I do believe that Lewis would definitely hold his own there too. I'm looking forward to where the rules change. So we'll see. Hopefully it might be something that will change the game a little bit. Yeah, you're right. Well, if Lewis does decide to stick around beyond this season, next season the season beyond when the new rules even up the playing field to an extent we'll get closer to that answer of is Max as good or better than Lewis just looking at the stats I actually for once did a little bit of research you're going to be impressed with me on this for Hamilton to become seven times world champion at Istanbul in Turkey this weekend he needs to finish the race with at least a 78 point advantage over his teammate Valtteri Bottas right now the margin is 85 points so Bottas needs to outscore Hamilton by a minimum of eight points to keep the title fight alive. That's doable, but it probably means Lewis getting punted off in a corner. Bottas has to finish in the top six or Hamilton is champion. So it's not all over bar the shouting. There's a strong possibility that he could become seven-time world champion this weekend, but it's not a certainty. Zog, do you think he will? I think he will. Like you say, it's going to take a significant act of fate to stop him pulling it off. So if I'm betting on an outcome this weekend, it's that Lewis is going to seal the deal. Sarah, you're not a betting person, are you? I like to bet when I know I'm going to win. But I definitely do agree. I think Lewis Hamilton will take it away this season. Interestingly, I think, though, what will be probably more exciting for not only me, but everybody else that enjoys F1 is who's going to come in in second, third and fourth. 
So I like the fact that Renault were right up there and Daniel Ricciardo's made a huge difference with that. So the sort of middle of the field of really marking it up and Alex Albon hasn't really done too well for Red Bull. That's sort of broken up the middle of the field too. And also it's good to see Pierre Gasly doing well. So and I think even the driver of the day last week was our good friend Kimi Raikkonen and he was in the middle of the pack too. So... Oh, that's pretty exciting, I think, if you're not just into watching Mercedes win every week and Lewis Hamilton watching every week. I don't mind because having someone right at the very top of the sport, a team and a driver, that's fine. The racing goes on elsewhere, so it doesn't mean that it's dull just because you know who's going to come first and second. The rest of the field is just as fascinating. But for now, we wait and see. We wait and see. Sarah, we're going to say goodbye to you now. Okay. Because for the rest of the show, we're going to talk about road cars and Alex Goy is joining us for that. Things that I'm not as much of an expert on than Alex Goy. So Alex, I'll hand you the baton then. Okay. All right. Goodbye. Lovely to chat to you. Bye. Bye. Cheers, Sarah. Yeah, we're not done yet. We have lots to talk about with Alex Goy in a moment. But first, here's a piece of music for you. A song I started writing for the show about 13 years ago. And I finally finished it and updated it. Uh, It's recorded loosely in the style of Faithless, and it's called Don't Mess with the F-I-A. Up and down the pit lane, in and out all day. We're watching what you're doing, ensuring his fair play. We have no fear, not afraid of a fray. Don't mess with us, with the F-I-A. No way, man. 
transmission We won't allow under any condition Party mode, ha, no fear And we also disallow Asymmetric brakes, steer. We'll stop between chassis and other stuff that's flashy Six wheels and fans will all face bands That great idea that you thought was coming We'll stop you from using it as soon As we see it running We'll take it to pieces and turn it inside out Gareth Jones on speed and I'm very pleased to welcome Alex Goy once again to the show. Nice to have you. Alex, how's things in South London? Everything is fine in South London. There is rain and little crime that I can hear of. <laughs> However, I am in my office rather than in my cupboard. So if you hear sirens, that's because some crime is happening. South London crime, which is the best kind, isn't it? Yeah, it's mostly knives and, <laughs> <laughs> and um, rubbish drug crime. Like someone's been done doing a little bit of weed. It's not like heroin and it's not like a load of coke. That's Mayfair. I think the only difference between South London crime and North London crime is that you guys are left-hand drive in the South, aren't you? So it's all left-handed stabbings. We're left-hand drive and we don't pronounce the letter T quite as clearly as you do in the North. (laughs) Hey, have you been driving things recently? Have you done any test driving of anything, Alex? No, there's a virus. That's sort of a lie. Some stuff's been going on. What have I been doing? Let me have a look at my calendar, see what I have been doing. Like any freelance journalist at the moment, everyone's been panicking and just trying to do anything. Anything that's kicking around. Any work that's going on. Yeah, for instance, I wrote an article for Daft Trucks magazine recently. Wow. That's a first. What was it about? Hang on, Daft Trucks, of course. It was was also (laughs) about the role of Daft Trucks in moving rock and roll equipment around. A chap I knew many years ago set up a company using Daft Trucks who specialise in moving band equipment around. Manic Street Breaches, The Alarm, U2, Beyonce, all these big people. So I wrote an article about that. I interviewed him and wrote an article about it. So, yes. That's really cool. Exactly right. It's this time where freelancers will do anything. And it's a good crossover for you. You know, it's motoring, trucking and rock and roll. Yeah, Perfect. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what have you driven, Alex? Anything exciting? I'm just having a look through my calendar. It feels scarcely as though it was 
three weeks ago because I, I had last week off because I was a little bit poorly. Not with the Rona, but with a little bit of a tummy problem. Oh. But I'm all right now. So what have I done? Weren't you involved in the Aston Martin launch for the DBX recently? Did I see something? Recent is a comparative term. That was July? No! Yeah, man. Hang on. Let me find out. This is what coronavirus does, though. It kind of contracts your timescale and basically everything becomes yesterday and a few days before that, tomorrow and a few days beyond. And, you know, all the stuff that's in your rearview mirror just gets sort of contracted into sort of yesterday. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird feeling. I drove the Aston Martin DBX on Monday the 15th of June. No way! Wow. <laughs> That's madness. So the embargo has lifted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and did you like it? Yeah, man. It's a really, really solid car. So a lot of people have this... I, I, I can understand why a lot of people are like, oh, you can't have an Aston Martin SUV. It's not an Aston Martin if it's an SUV. But then you have to remember that the Porsche Cayenne saved the company. Yeah. Bentley's Bentayga has done amazingly great guns for the firm. The Rolls-Royce Cullinan brought in something like, and last year was a, a record-breaking year, five and a half thousand cars, something like that. 40% of that was Cullinan and I think it's 60 to 80% of the people that bought the Cullinan were new to the brand. So that's new money being scooped in, which is just fantastic. So the fact that Aston Martin did it in the first place, hugely important, massively relevant car. And yeah, again, I get why people are complaining. I also get that these are the same people that go, oh, the manual gearbox is dying. How dare the manual gearbox die? And you just think, yeah, well, the reason it's dying is because you didn't buy one in the first place. <laughs> Yeah. Do you know what? I feel genuinely sorry for Dr. Andy Palmer, who put what he called the second century plan together at Aston Martin. And he made all the right moves. He made some great decisions. It cost Aston Martin because when they went public, you know, it didn't quite work out. But they've got all the products in place mm. for them to thrive now. Except the problem is very few people are buying the manual Vantage because he claimed that the Vantage was going to be the last... V8 manual sports car in the world ever and and it just <laughs> people aren't buying it I haven't driven one it's on my list of things to drive but I have yet to drive one but DBX as a product it had two jobs to do it had to feel like an Aston Martin and it had to feel like an SUV two very different things on the face of it but when you look at what an Aston is it needs to be fast it needs to be comfortable and it needs to be elegant yeah so dbx on the elegant side of things the front great side profile great rear eh, not for me a little bit too bulbous they tried to repurpose that vantage rear light graphic which is such a good ass on a vantage not so great when you've made it three times as big and seven thousand times off the ground the fast thing got that covered five hundred thousand horsepower turbocharged v8 like it's just effortlessly quick it makes an amazing noise and it's quiet on the motorway you just sit in your isolated bubble and it's way better looking than the cullinan and the bentayga isn't it definitely the bentayga mm -hmm. the thing is the new bentayga which i also drove recently is quite good the new bentayga they've kind of smoothed it out so it doesn't look quite as abhorrent anymore so i think the bentayga's got the rear end on the Aston, but the Aston's got the front end on the Bentayga. And the Cullinan, I quite like it. I know I have to whisper that, but I quite like it. Just because it's big and square and it's like a cathedral with wheels. You said elegant was something that an Aston Martin should be. And I think that was absolutely the word that was forming in my mind just as you said it. But elegant is a big ask for that 
type of vehicle. And I think you're right that actually, you know, that, that it almost works better to make them kind of on the sort of harder, squarer, you know, more mechanical, industrial side than to try to make them elegant because it's not really going to happen. If they had twice the width and twice the length, they would be able to do it. It would look like that Lagonda concept car from Geneva a few years ago, that all electric mm. thing. And it would be really cool. But DBX, the rear is the bit that lets it down. The front, it works. It's got the Aston headlights. It's got the grill down the side. It's got the strakes. And in profile, what they've done is really smart because they've managed to hide a lot of the visual weight really well. So when you look at it, you expect this massive slab-sided thing because it is a massive car. It's huge huge thing but actually because of the lines down the side the way the car folds in on itself towards the bottom it doesn't look very large but that it's just the rear on view it's very flat and that kind of very definitely ends the car it doesn't taper it just stops mm. i want to pick up on something you said a minute ago alex mm. about people complaining that oh you can't have an aston martin if it's an suv oh that's not an aston martin because i have a similar mindset for something i want to talk about now and that is the mustang mac e now oh you can't have a mustang that's a five door hatchback and that's electric or can you i have to say i was genuinely shocked when ford launched the new electric car to spearhead their electric charge for want of a better word sorry and and branded it Mustang, which is kind of bold and cheeky and naughty. And yet I was talking to my mate, Mike Peters, him out of the alarm, who drives a Mustang. And he wanted to know all about the new Mustang Mach-E. The fact that it was an electric car, the fact that it was a four or five door, the fact that it was all wheel drive. For a man who lives halfway up a mountain and has got two kids, this was going to be his next car. So... I think it was a gamble that Ford have arguably pulled off. Are you impressed with the Mackie, Zoggy? My initial reaction was sort of tending more towards horror than excitement. <laughs> As I've seen a bit more of it, my feelings are evolving and have become a bit more nuanced. But to sum it up, I think as somebody that loves a good old Mustang... When I first saw it, I kind of hated it, to be honest. I didn't really like the look of it, and I didn't at all like the idea of taking an icon of speed and turning it into a rather... It's a very fast car, though, the Mach-E. Another bloody SUV. Yeah, but the point is, it's another, you know, SUV crossover thing. Yeah. Now, that said... Ford has been rather behind the game in terms of getting into the electric vehicle business. They needed to take some big steps. Badging this as a Mustang, calling this a Mustang, is a bold move, probably a very smart one. I think that the era of that kind of car is over. And I think we have to move on. And I think what Ford have done, they seem to have done a good job with this, I think. And I don't think I can say that I particularly like it, but I think they've done very smart and good things with it and i think it will do quite well and did you know that you're absolutely right in what you say slapping the mustang badge on it because when they started developing it it was not going to be called the mustang it was a change of management at the top end of ford who suddenly decided we're going to call this car mustang and i think it was met with the same sort of response in ford that everyone else outside of Florida's house. Just wait, what, 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 what now? You know, but I think you're right. It's a 
cheeky, smart move. It is a Mustang. We've accepted it now, haven't we? Well, much like racists on the internet, there's a lot of noise being made on Twitter about how it definitely shouldn't be a Mustang. Whereas the reality is, you have to remember that the vast majority of people that are actually going to buy these, the people who are in the market for an SUV, that is also electric. Yep. They're not going to be the kind of person that has these sort of wet dreams over cruising down Route 1 in a Mustang in 1966. Yep. Yeah, they yeah. just don't care. Yeah. They want to take their kids around, but they've heard the name Mustang. Yep. Yeah. Mustang Sally, big thing, all the kind of cultural references that go with it. You hear Ford Mustang and someone goes, oh, that's quite an evocative image. I like the sound of that. Let's play this game. They go, well, you can have a Mustang that you can take the kids to school in. You can do the shopping in and it's electric. Boom. The association is there with a whole different kind of buyer. So the fact they did that, I think, is really smart. I won't lie. When I first saw it last year, I think it came out. I I saw it in the flesh, in the metal at the L.A. show. And I was like, what is this? This is massive. It's a big lump and strange thing. But as time's gone on, you kind of have a look at it and you think... It's got the Mustang bits on it. It's got the right stuff. It's got the headlights. It's got the big grille. Admittedly, it's blanked off on this. It's got the haunches at the front, just like the current car. It's got the haunches at the back, just like the current car. It's got the window graphic. It's just got more body to it. And the whole thing with why is it an SUV? Again, it's back to the people on Twitter saying, I want a manual. I want a manual. They're also saying, why is everyone building an SUV? Because that's where the money is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a one car does all, you know. And a coupe SUV is your sports car it's your family car it's your electric car it's your four-wheel drive in one boom there it is yeah one size fits all i slightly mourn the fact that it has elements of mustang rather than huge dollops of raw mustang but this is the way the world is going it's fan art yeah i applaud ford for doing what they've done there i think it is a smart vehicle i think they've done a much better job than we might have expected them to do with it i do kind of regret the passing of the old mustang but um ah That's the way the world goes. Zoggy, I don't think we've seen the end of the old Mustang. Depending on how... you could always just buy an old Mustang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. But I think now that Ford have got this platform, you know, they're going to launch it with a five-door SUV, but I wouldn't rule out Ford making a three-door ultra sports version of the Mustang on this same platform. They're not going to do a different body, though. Right? Yeah, they a will. Whole different, you know, whole different sports car body. So what they have now is they have a platform that you can fit lots of batteries in and will do X hundred miles. Hang on, I was reading a news story about this earlier. 370, so. I think 370, so I think, is, 300, the, is the longest range. I think if you've got the, re- the rear-wheel drive version with the 99 kilowatt hour pack, gives you 370-mile mm. range, yeah. I think. Yep. So they have the platform... And they have the battery power and they've got all the toys to make it do the thing. What they'll now do is they will work as, you know, a load of manufacturers have. They will work towards making those batteries and that powertrain as efficient as possible to try and fit in as small a space as possible. Mm. So what we'll have, well, they'll have the Mustang, the Mach-E Mustang. They'll have it. They'll see whether people will buy it, for one, because they might have an amazingly low take up. Because remember, EVs are expensive. Yeah. Revised starting price at what? A little over 40, isn't it? 40, 43 grand? Well, it's just over 40. Yeah. So that's for the entry-level rear-drive one. That's still a lot of money, Yep. no matter whose books you're in. But then I think the logical next step for them is something like a Polestar. Not necessarily a Mustang Mustang, but a Polestar. So it's still a family car, it's still a sensible car, but they can get all that stuff in a cut-down version of that platform that they can then fit most of the batteries in and they can have like almost the same range and almost this and almost that and still do the Mustang thing until eventually 
I think I was talking to an electric car expert about stuff and things a while ago. They reckon seven or eight years is how long we've got with current tech before we have the next big leap. And then they'll start working out what's going on. Then, boom, we get our Mustang with a piped in V8 noise that we can drive down Route 1 in and be all romantic about. I reckon <laughs> the next Ford sporting electric SUV will be called Capri or Pony. It'll be a smaller version. Yeah. If they're micro sizing the technology the for a smaller platform, the Shetland. <laughs> Yes, go for the market that. there. They'd be. Uh... <laughs> but listen, this is a man who struggles with the Puma. Have you seen the Ford Puma out on the road I over have. here? This Tell is... you what, they are more common than the hydrogen atom around here. Yeah, there's lots of them, but I don't like them. I honestly don't like them. I think they're bulbous and podgy. After lockdown, Gareth, so is half the country. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that, that explains it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the Puma. And only because I am such a massive Ford fan. Of all the car companies, Ford is the one I've followed most closely over my 59 years. And I struggle when they make a car called Puma that isn't a coupe. And yet I've accepted Mustang that isn't a coupe. I don't know what that says about me, but I don't like the Puma. The Puma is very much a European project very much a british thing as well it's mm-hmm. a callum car and it's yeah a you know, great it's, callum it's, car it's based on a fiesta so it's one of those things where it's like it's, it's a proper we got it whereas yeah. mustang we didn't get them until comparatively recently we had that romantic ideal but we didn't actually have it so it's not really our thing to be miffed about puma yeah you can understand it's like that's not a puma it's a small suv yeah mustang mm. like, i think you're right you, you do what you want with your toys america we'll be grumpy about ours yeah, it's because we yeah, invest yeah, more yeah. in it. That's exactly my point. Yeah, when I talk about loving Ford, I'm loving Ford of Europe. It's a car company I've followed most closely. Uh, yeah, a great Callum car. I always wanted a racing Puma, Jackie Stewart edition. Oh, I, re- I still on. want one. Hang on. I should have said that out loud. Listen, while we're on the subject of rebranding cars, reinventing cars with an old brand name, let's talk about the rebirth of Hummer. Which I have to say, I think this is a work of genius to relaunch Hummer, which was previously the archetype, most profligate, gas guzzling, horrific thing on the planet as an EV is a work of rebranding genius. Zog, you'd agree, I guess? Um, I think I haven't quite made my mind with this one yet, because again, rather like the new Mustang, my initial reaction was kind of, what is this? What is this dreadful thing? And there are certainly some bad things to say about it. Not least the price, it's an expensive thing. Hummers always were. Certainly the launch version. But there are a few things about it that, that are kind of maybe bringing me on side. Are you aware of some of the moon-related touches on it, Gareth? Oh gosh, no. Moon-related? No. What? Yeah, if you open the doors, there's an embossing on the inside of the doors that represents the sea of tranquility and the footsteps of the Apollo 11 astronauts. And the footrest in the driver's footwell is sized for Neil Armstrong's boot, I believe. One small step for man, one giant carbon footprint for mankind. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... It's not entirely clear why they've done this. I'm trying to think what the connection is. Who made the Moon Rover? Was it, it was Boeing or Rockwell who made the? No, it was GM. It was GM. 
Yeah, it's a GM thing, isn't it? Hang on. Uh, to the internet. Yeah, have a look. And I always thought it was Rockwell and Boeing who were involved, but I think it was GM, and that's why they're drawing that connection. So they can kind of claim a bit of heritage there. This is the thing about it. If you're going to make any kind of green vehicle or head greenwoods, making enormous vehicles, making vehicles that are massively heavy is not the way to go. One way that you save energy and reduce your carbon footprint is reduce the amount of materials you're using and reduce the amount of weight that you're shifting about. But again, in Hummer, they've got a very strong brand to build on. And if you're trying to win over a lot more kind of old school drivers and you know people that love their trucks and try to win them over to electric vehicles, maybe making an enormous Hummer is the way to go. Now, th- that said, all GM care about here is shifting units, is selling things. Yep. They don't particularly care, I think, whether they sell them to new customers or old customers. Talking about selling things, they had such trouble selling Hummers back in 2008 Quite that they likely. tried to sell the whole brand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they tried to sell them and they had a Chinese company, if I remember, were involved and the negotiations went on. They had, the Chinese company announced that they were going to buy Hummer and then at the last minute pulled out and the whole thing was put on hold. So that's how desperate they were. So to completely turn it on its head and sell it, and this is what I think is the genius move, it's arguably a direct rival for Tesla's Cybertruck, which is an equally Herculean, angular EV. And I think Tesla styling the Cybertruck to look like that has really helped Hummer realise what they can do with their brand. And thank you very much. I think it's paved the way for Hummer. I think it'll do well. I genuinely do. Did you find out the answer? Was it GM, Alex? Yeah, so GM had a definite hand in building the Lunar Rover, but lots of contracts were awarded to lots of people. AC Mm, Delco mm. were involved, Boeing, I think. Oh, thousands of people. Right, he's reading up on it. Lunar Roving Vehicle, the LRV, moon buggies. Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic looking vehicles. It weighed 210 kilos. How cool is that? And even less on the moon. The ultimate off-roader, surely. Has anything ever gone further off-road, further from a paved road than the LRV? I don't think so. Actually, the Hummer is analogous to the lunar roving vehicle because it too has four-wheel steer. And of course, the moon rover had four-wheel steering and four-wheel drive. Does the Hummer have four motors? And it's four it does, yeah. three motors. Three motors. It has three motors, two drive units, which will produce an estimated 986 brake horsepower. It's not enough. And 11,500 pound foot. Needs more than that. A ludicrously useless amount of power. Like, what are you going to do with that? Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to use it to climb this mountain. No, you're going to use it to just erode it away. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tunneling machine. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It is an absurd amount of power and it's an absurd amount of weight, but we're not the target market for this machine. No, none of us are related to any other family. Uh, none of us are, 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 <laughs> married are trying to, our to marry any, yeah. uh, any direct blood relations. <laughs> you know, if you're selling trucks, you need to sell big, powerful things, don't you? Isn't that part of the deal? I mean, the size of the truck is inversely proportional to the size of the male genitalia, yes. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Um, the Ford F650, which I saw someone drive once in Tulsa, it's quite quite the machine. It's two trucks strapped together, isn't it? I do understand that there are a very few people who actually do need some of those enormous vehicles. You know, there are some people that are doing some kinds of work, but 
I kind of find just how appealing they are to a lot of people, particularly in the States, I find it quite disturbing that the people want to drive those kind of really enormous, powerful trucks as their own kind of domestic vehicles. It's a very silly thing. However, as a rebirth and a rebrand, electrification is probably the right way for Hummer to go. Oh, sure. Because at least, you know, they say it'll do some miles on a charge rather than some charges per mile, (laughs) as the old car would have done. A big truck is really not a bad platform to electrify because you've got plenty of room to play with to stick your batteries. And the range, I think, doesn't the Hummer have a range getting on for 400 miles? And I think 350 on a full charge. Decent range. The range of the Rivian, you know, that yep. planned other American truck has a very good range to it. My mate Emmy, actually, here's a plug for a friend of mine. If you want to see or hear what the Rivian is like to drive off-road, my mate Emmy Hall from Roadshow in the US recently used one on the Rebel Rally. It's an all-female desert rally. Last year she did it in a Rolls-Royce Cullinan and I think had a good go at destroying it but did quite well. This year they're the first people outside of Rivian to actually drive the car. The review's amazing, the car sounds ace like they did super well in it as well. So it's worth doing. And it looks really cool and quite happy. Excellent. It's a good vehicle. Good for her. Ford have invested in Rivian, haven't they? They've done a deal with Rivian, whereby they're going to use Rivian's platform for some of their upcoming EVs, as far as I understand. That's how good the Rivian is. Coming back to the Hummer, though... There's a couple of bits of technology on that car are kind of cute. Kind of cute. Can I say this in an American accent? Rock sliders. It's got rock sliders, which are these bars that run where the, um, what do you call the foot plates that you have that you step up into a door on a four by four? Running boards. It has rock sliders under there, sort of sliding running boards, which allow it to straddle rocks. And it's also got underbody cameras, which do that whole... Not the invisible bonnet thing that Land Rover do. Which is really cool. It is. <laughs> That's spooky too. But it does allow you to see the terrain that you're driving on and thereby make the thing more functional. And when you consider that the Hummer is the size of a small house. <laughs> this is one of the things that screws me up about off-roading. Whenever I drive any like new Land Rover product, they're like, oh yeah, drive down this impossibly narrow muddy thing that if you clip the edge you'll just rip a bit of door off don't worry about that i'm constantly terrified that i'm going to tear bits car off but with tech like that invisible bonnet or like these underbody cameras the ability to see what's there going oh i do actually have six inches of clearance either side we're okay i'm not nervous oh that's a big rock i should get out of the way that's genuinely useful technology but the only reason it's useful is because the cars are so big yeah and you're taking the places that you really shouldn't be taking them i mean you know it's, uh, <laughs> if they made them little you wouldn't need it no tarmac exists for a reason what's wrong with you people <laughs> yeah if you want to get out in nature you know get a, have, have a walk have a hike you go know get away from you know much as we love wheeled transport <laughs> there's a lovely country know, break out the walking boots go for a hike get out into nature people we can't be advocating this sort of behavior this is sorry, a car sorry. program no no get in your car and drive everywhere you want listen we've got to wrap this up but before i go i want to mention a couple of momentous things relating to motorsport very briefly before we go one is that the final ever WEC round featuring LMP1 hybrid cars happens in Bahrain, the eight hours of Bahrain. Toyota are going to win it because there are no other cars in the LMP1 class racing against them whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, I did rather enjoy when Toyota won Le Mans outright, as they would have done because they were the only car with LMP1 H tech on board. And they got very, very sniffy when Aston Martin started advertising saying, oh, we just won Le Mans. 
Like, oh, well, we won, we won, we won. And just the temptation on every single tweet and comment is like, yeah, in a class of one, if you didn't win, there would be something wrong. Like, come on, guys. I was 100% behind them when they won for the yep. first time. I was so happy. Mm. I was so disappointed for them that year. They should have won. But, yep. but now, if they don't win... Shame on dude, them. Dude, what is wrong yeah, with yeah, you? Yeah. But we mourn the passing of the LMP1 hybrid class, which has given us some incredible technology over the years. Let's wave them off with a yeah. happy smile, and we wish them well. Sad to see them go. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, look forward to way. the hypercar the hypocar next year but we'll talk about that on another program and finally the very last thing before we go good luck to Elvin Evans a fellow North Walian, a fellow Welsh speaker like me who is 14 points ahead of Sebastian Ogier in the World Rally Championship there's only one more round at Monza in Italy to go and if he beats Ogier, you get 25 points for a win in the WRC. But if he stays ahead of Ogier, he will be not only the first British winner of the World Rally Championship since Richard Burns in 2001, but the first ever Welsh winner of the World Rally Championship. And I started the show on a note of celebration and optimism. There's something else to look forward to and optimistic as well. I wish him well. You've been listening to Alex Goy. Bye. To Zog. Goodbye. And me, Gareth. This was Gareth Jones on Speed. See you for the next one. Alex, also, great to have you back. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me. To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! 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 <laughs>